Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Ah! Live from the gleaming streamlined studios of OutlawRadioLive.com, nestled in our secret bunker somewhere in the Los Angeles area. Following program is produced by Magic Matt Allen on the Outlaw Radio Network, which covers a lot of territory. In fact, 75% of our audience is in the United States of America. Where are the rest of the people? Well, surprisingly enough, number two is Australia, followed by uh, Canada and then England, and then kind of divided up between Pakistan and uh, the United Arab, Arab, Arab Emirates. And John Farrick? Yes, well, hey, how you doing, buddy? Hey, better and better every day in every way. One of my favorite investigative journalists is on the phone. <laughs> Clue our audience in on the case. Will you give us a quick backstory? Hey, yeah, we're talking about Stephen Avery and making a murder. The case uh, made famous on Netflix uh, 2015, and then also the season two of that uh, uh, making a murder 2018. Um, Stephen Avery was um, um, Wisconsin rascal that uh, from Mantua County that uh, was jailed in 1985, released in 2003 for a rape that uh, he did not commit. So he lost 18 years of his life to uh, for a wrongful conviction uh, case in Wisconsin. While he was out of prison, awaiting uh, um, a, a federal settlement in his uh, federal lawsuit, uh, uh, a young woman that was a photographer uh, was on the property. She disappeared. A week later, Stephen Avery gets arrested and charged with, uh, with her murder and... Uh, again, maintains and insists that he's innocent to this day of that crime as well. Um, he was convicted by a jury and uh, is still in prison to this day. Yeah, which absolutely amazes me. I mean, I'm, I'm not a lawyer, and I don't play one on television. <laughs> but even as a, as a true crime investigative journalist, on my radar, <laughs> my yeah. true crime radar went off on this one right away. <laughs> And I, as I said to Michael Griesbeck, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> well, not only that, too, Burl, we had, we had the same police officers and deputies investigating him for the, for the disappearance and presumed murder of Teresa Hallbuck, the same ones that were testifying um, given depositions three weeks earlier in his wrongful conviction case. So, uh, I mean... <laughs> It seemed yeah, highly suspect to me. Yeah, the conflict of interest is bigger than Mount Everest, you know, or Kilimanjaro. It's just, it's just monstrous as far as how big it was. Well, this says a lot about the state of Wisconsin, or at least about that county, in terms of their ethics and law enforcement procedures. Absolutely, Burl. I mean, and I would say both, because uh, Wisconsin condoned that. And they also... Uh, um, when they did their investigation into Stephen Avery's wrongful conviction for the rape case, they decided that even though there were a lot of mistakes and they screwed up and the wrong guy, uh, uh, and there was a real ra- serial rapist that was going around uh, um, that they committed that crime, but uh, they decided, they was kind of decided no police officers will be charged with any crimes despite the, the big screw-up uh, that cost Stephen Avery 18 years in his life for that one. So there you go. And uh, just when they were about to be the big suit for what thirty six million dollars, 
Suddenly yep, they arrest yeah. him? Yeah, yeah, they spent um and the thing was too, bro, they spent um they spent over a week on the Stephen Avery in the family's property doing the investigation. I mean, what was the last time that you can remember any police officers getting a search warrant, you know, where it's longer than a day or two? Um this is a forty acre property with about eight hundred jumped automobiles on it. So uh um, it was not a secure crime. It was not a secure scene. It was not a secure crime scene. And um, anybody and everybody could walk around that property uh, and potentially plant evidence, which I think happened. Well, in your excellent book, Wrecking Crew, which I was uh, reading again just uh, last night in preparation for this, at the beginning you talk about the woman that he supposedly murdered, her car. Her family posted pictures of her and her car everywhere and someone sees the car and notifies right. excuse me several people actually yeah but uh, but yeah in that uh, in that uh, week or so before uh, before the, her car was ultimately turned up uh, um, you had several people that had seen her uh, it was a rav for just to remind uh, our listeners uh, it was a rav for um, and it was kind of blue green in color so depending on the, the sunlight it would either look uh, green or, or blue, but nonetheless, uh, a lot of people called to the Manitowoc County Sheriff's Office saying that they thought they saw this vehicle at a turnaround, or turnabout, they call it in Wisconsin, I guess, but uh, kind of a turnaround uh, along the state highway. And, um, you know, the police uh, pretended like they didn't know about that or, or, or didn't, uh, you know, didn't investigate that. But, uh, but again, like you said, Burl, Several people uh, thought they saw the vehicle. Uh, and there was nothing about the vehicle having any damage to it. And yet when it miraculously shows up on Avery's property, it's got damage. Right. That's a very good point. Uh, it has, uh, uh, on the driver's side, uh, um, headlight uh, was cracked uh, and destroyed. Uh, and the bumper uh, had damage. And then, uh, lo and behold... When you open up the back, uh, the, the the latch on the back of the RAV4, uh, um, you know, where you'd put groceries or potentially a body in this case, um, Teresa's body. But uh, nonetheless, uh, there was a little uh, part of the, uh, the headlights uh, that uh, had popped uh, or been broken. Uh, so whoever, uh, whoever crashed their vehicle or damaged their vehicle, it could have been, you know, either scenario, bro, but, uh, but somebody... Uh, decided to lift up that uh, broken um, headlight lamp, and then they put it in the back of the vehicle. That was um, nice of again, them. Again, that yeah. doesn't fit with Stephen Avery and, and the idea that somehow Teresa Hallbach was murdered, you know, at his trailer after she showed up uh, to take photographs of some of the vehicles that he and his family was trying to sell. I mean, this thing sticks to high heaven. What I mean, from a legal standpoint, and all the attempts to get him out... What has been the big roadblock here? Oh, uh, say that again, bro. I missed the last part. You said what? I what said. Has been? I mean, this case stinks. I mean, yeah, yeah. Uh, what's been the big roadblock of getting him out of it? Oh, the big roadblock. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, well, you know, for the longest time, uh, you know, since making a murder came out, and Kathleen Zellner won the world 
you know, leading wrongful conviction lawyers, very high-powered uh, attorney and, uh, you know, very well prominent uh, throughout the country. You know, she's been, unco- you know, she's done her own investigation. She has her own team of uh, private investigators that work at her law firm for her. And they've uncovered evidence after evidence uh, as far as, you know, either evidence that was planted tampered with, or she's found witnesses that the police refused to interview Burrow, which is really interesting and fascinating. And, you know, and Mickey Murder, I thought, was an outstanding series. But, you know, if, you know a lot of these things I'm telling you about right now have, have happened in the last four or five years, even since Wrecking Crew, my, you know, my book here came out. Uh, um, so I'm going to cover that in the updated book. But, um, or I have, I should say. But, uh, but in spite of all that, getting back to your question about the roadblock, the roadblock has mainly been the Wisconsin court. Um, even though Zellner has presented all this evidence and, and found um, Brady violations by the prosecution where they withheld evidence from the defense or, uh, or, or didn't turn things over, she's lost all her appeals so far. But, but about three weeks ago, a major development happened in the case. Um, Judge Angie Suckowitz, who's handled the case for the last 10 years or so on Avery's appeal, and she's an idiot, bro. This <laughs> is this, is, this is, an official is, diagnosis? <laughs> yes, I, and, 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 and as you and I, yeah, you know I am a license to, to give these kinds of diagnosis. Yeah. On, only on your, your show, of course. But, uh, but this judge, and I've read her opinion, and, um, and she, the sad thing for Avery, you know, or just our justice system, regardless of if you're guilty or innocent, you deserve a fair trial Yes, in America. Um, it, guilty people should be let go if the police... Good luck with that. Tamper, tamper with evidence. Um, <clears throat> um, but in this, in this case, poor Steve Avery has had a judge that doesn't know the facts of the case. So she's had the case, even though it's one of the highest profile cases in America these last several years. And she still gets basic facts of the case wrong, and that was evident in her August appeal, you know, where she's getting the, the Dassey family brothers mixed up guys and uh, and other facts of the case that actually the bones of Teresa Holbuck were, in fact, found in the Dassey family's burn barrel. Not Stephen Avery's burn barrel, but when she puts together her opinion in August that denied uh, Avery an, either a new trial or even just having an evidentiary hearing in her courtroom, getting these facts mixed up. It's just embarrassing. So anyway, but my point is that just about three weeks ago, she announced she's, she's no longer going to handle Stephen Avery's case. She claimed that she's got too many cases. She, she cited uh, you know, a caseload issue. So she has excused herself and removed herself from the case. And this just happened about three weeks ago, guys. So she probably uh, should have removed herself several years ago. Well, and even Kathleen Zellner tried about three or four years ago to get her removed because she thought this judge was biased. She's, this judge is actually connected to Ken Kraft, the prosecutor in the case that you guys, I'm sure, remember. Uh, um, they got into all that sexual uh, uh, turmoil and uh, ultimately had to resign from office. But um, but she had a connection with him just because they had both been out of state of Wisconsin, uh, you know, um, um government committee together. So she was always sympathetic to the prosecution and the Ken Kraft and uh, just does, did not want to make waves, even even though justice was not being served, uh, you know, Stephen Avery's case with all this planted evidence, uh, you know, fabricated evidence and Brady violations. 
Mark Boyer. Have... Mark Boyer has a question for you. Welcome back. Yeah, Mark. We had a we had a case uh, here you know, on the show, you know, many years ago. I believe it was from Texas, where it was it was obvious that the the defendant was innocent, <clears throat> and and the uh, appeals decision it specifically said the fact that the that the defendant is innocent of the crime is not sufficient to warrant a new trial. That's crazy. That's crazy. That was exactly what it said. This was a, this was a, a violent crime or a high-profile Yeah, it was a murder. It was oh, a murder. Geez. Yeah, it's as high as it gets, yeah. Um, that's incredible. And that's kind of been the situation that Zellner is, is Kathleen Zellner is dealt with here in Wisconsin. And she told me, when I interviewed her for my book update that's coming out here in a few weeks, hopefully, she pointed out, Mark, that uh, you know if, if, if Stephen Avery's case was in any other state, especially here in Illinois where I live and she's at now, um, she's positive, you know, that uh, she would have either had the evidentiary hearing or gotten a new trial. And I believe that just because, again, I work mostly as a as a journalist, uh, and I, you know, I cover courts. Uh, pretty much five days a week here in Illinois. And, uh, and I see murder trials, murder convictions overturned, you know, fairly regularly based on technicalities or a bad or faulty jury instruction or, you know, a witness that comes forward after the fact. So the fact that Zellner has spent, you know, six or seven years now uncovering, finding new witnesses, um, uncovering, uh, Brady violations where the prosecution and the Bantock, Manchwa County Sheriff's Office did not turn over to Stephen Avery's original lawyers, Dean Frang and uh, Jerry Buting, didn't turn over evidence. And yet, this day, that judge, Angie Suckowitz, you know, has refused to give Stephen Avery a court hearing or a new trial. Um, it's just incredible. And it sounds like it's exactly like what you're talking about in Texas, where, you know, where a court says even if a person's innocent, uh, um, you know, that's not grounds for a new trial, which is just absurd. It's embarrassing. Um, luckily, most, I think these situations are rare, but unfortunately for Stephen Avery, thanks to the case is so high profile, it's kind of made Wisconsin dig in its heels uh, just because they don't want further bad publicity and humiliation. Well, they're certainly they're getting... Worldwide. They're yeah. getting more bad publicity because of the fact they're so screwed up. And here's Avery, who admittedly, I mean, his psychological profile and his mental state, he's not the brightest bulb on the porch in the first oh, God, place. No. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. Uh, the stress of this is, you know, I mean, when he got out of prison the first time after 18 years, he built himself an igloo that was about the same size as his cell mm-hmm. and lived in that, right. you know, yep. Yep. because, I mean, he's been so traumatized. You know, I can't imagine what his mental state is by this time. Right. And uh, the um, the place that he was living at, you know, like you said, he, he spent that time on that, uh, at that shanty or that igloo as, uh, you know, people outside Wisconsin. Uh, you know, but his trailer, which I've been to several times over the years, the one that was actually on the Avery family property, the thing's just like a big shoebox. Uh, um, it's... Uh, you know, it's rectangular in length, but uh, the notion that somehow he had lured Teresa Hallbeck, a photographer who was, you know, just as big as him, if not a little bit taller, that somehow he lured her inside and attacked her 
break her and, you know, cut her up and, you know, shot her. Um, there was no physical evidence to back any of that up, guys. So, uh, so even though that was a wild fantasy, they can class the prosecutor used and, and got a lot of attention in the making a murder of the original series. Uh, there was no evidence to back up that story. It was just a fictitious, you know, yarn that, uh, that, um, and class the prosecutors spun in this case, and it worked as far as uh, you know getting a jury to convict Stephen Avery of the crime. But uh, but in reality, uh, you know the physical evidence uh, didn't back that story up at all, one iota. And uh, like you said, bro, Stephen Avery is a very simple-minded individual, and the fact he lost 18 years of his life to a conviction that he didn't, uh, to a rape that he didn't commit. And then somehow, and when he's on the verge of getting a $36 million settlement or something in that range, that he's going to commit this sadistic you know, murder and rape of this photographer who's been on his property numerous times before and really didn't have any issues. She wasn't scared of him. And, uh, and um, it just, it's just unbelievable that it really did happen. And, you know, it, the evidence doesn't back it up. And then what about the other guy who... Uh... Uh, supposedly uh, participated in this rape and murder, and then said uh, his his confession was coerced. Oh uh, uh, yeah, Brendan, his cousin. I mean, Stephen's uh, other nephew. Um, um, yeah, Brendan Daffy, and that's uh, he's in he's in real bad shape as far as on the on the courts are concerned because of the uh, he went the federal route, and uh, and I even remember before I even came out with Wrecking Crew, I was still a reporter in Wisconsin, and I was waiting at the prison um, in central Wisconsin, though I think he was in Columbia at that point in time, but uh, me and all the other media were out there waiting for him to walk out of prison, and then at the last possible second, the state of Wisconsin and their attorney general at the time, uh, he's no longer in office, thank God, but Brad Schimmel was his name, and Brad Schimmel filed a last-minute appeal to the federal court, um, to uh, to issue a stay as far as letting Brendan Dassey out of prison, and uh, and the stay was granted. The appeal was uh, filed in Chicago, and the Wisconsin and the Court of Appeals, the Federal Court of Appeals, ruled four to three to keep uh, Brendan Dassey in prison, and uh, and that pretty much was the end of the road for him. So he was supposed to get out. I was supposed to be there, you know, to interview him that day. And, um, and the Court of Appeals, um, you know, overturned the federal judge, uh, Judge Duffin in Wisconsin. They overturned his decision to let Brendan, uh, Brendan out of prison, um, even though that confession is both, you know, as we know, is garbage and fictitious. And, uh, and it was fed to him by the two investigators, uh, Bob Bender and, uh, and Weger. You know, and, and Brendan has developmental disabilities. He's all the time. They interviewed him in school. They pulled him out of class. I mean, no lawyer. He didn't even think of asking for a lawyer. He, and, he, and he thought he was going to go back to class after he got done, you know, uh, right. incriminating himself based on their version of events <clears throat> and what they spoon fed to him. And there's no way in hell that, that that story, you know, ever happened. The idea that somehow Stephen Avery guys, Mark and Burl, that, that he was committing this premeditated sadistic murder and then all of a sudden, in the middle of the act, um, you know, he's going to hear Brendan Dassey knocking on his on, on his trailer, and he's going to stop the act, and then invite Brendan in to help, 
you know, stab her and rape her. That's yeah. Crazy. Hey, won't you come in? I have a plan for us. I mean, yeah. make, the whole thing makes no sense. And it's such an embarrassment to the state of Wisconsin that this continues. And, I mean, thank God you keep writing these books and updating the book. Uh, what the well, hell is going to happen? say whatever they want about Stephen Avery. I know there's certainly a lot of people out there that, you know, that believe or are convinced that he, either he's guilty or also that he was framed, you know, by the police where they, where they you know, they planted evidence, fabricated evidence, but for a lot of people, but maybe he still did do the murder, you know, and then there's a larger camp that feels he's just innocent a hundred percent. But, but clearly Brendan Dassey, there's no way at all that somehow this was a two man job, you know, and, and it certainly didn't happen the ver you know, the way that Brendan was forced that, uh, you know, the story and that he's still in prison for it to this day. Um, that's just a travesty guys. Well, you think it's his, not just the shame that they don't want to admit to, but how much money they're going to have to pay when they let this guy, these guys out. That's very true. And, uh, and it certainly would be more in 2023 or 2024 than, you know, what it would, uh, you know, 2007 when they were convicted, uh, both of them. Uh, um, I mean, there could probably be three or four insurance companies, uh, you know, uh, uh, going under and uh, you know, insurance, <laughs> yes. insurance agents jumping off the, the Tower Drive Bridge in Green Bay to their death uh, uh, a couple hundred football fields, uh, you know, away. Uh, um, but, uh, but clearly you're right, though. <laughs> and that may be a motivating factor. I mean, Mark, I don't know if you have thoughts on that, too, but wouldn't you think that that's a potential reason why Brendan Dassey and Stephen Avery have had such a difficult time of course, oh, um, you get you get to the point where uh, admitting that you were wrong is no longer an option. You you've 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 dug yourself such a deep hole, you can't dig your way out of it. And as long as they keep saying he's guilty and denying, then they're right. Yeah, that's a good that's a good analogy. Uh, yeah, so so that you know, so it, you know, uh, it, it's just you know, it's unfortunately the proverbial catch twenty two. Um, does does Stephen have an opportunity to get somebody else to represent him going forward? It's um, I mean, Kathleen Zellner is still his attorney, and uh, she's pretty much doing it uh, pro bono, and she's. Um, you know, one of the country's leading wrongful conviction lawyers, and she visits with him fairly, fairly frequently. Uh, um, they just had a conversation uh, about a week or so ago uh, in depth uh, that um, she explained to him, you know, that I'm working on an update for the book, and, uh, and we were able to record uh, uh, about a 30-minute uh, interview, uh, you know, where a lot of my questions were asked uh, to him uh, you know, for, for this book, for this book update. Uh, but, uh, no, he's very satisfied, Mark, with her representation. And, and um, go ahead. Yeah, I understand that, you know, with the denial, that she was, uh, she was elated because now she's free to move it out of the state into the appellate court. Right. Um, and she kind of explained to him the, um, last, uh, oh, eight days ago, last Friday, uh, um, 
the uh, the Court of Appeals, you know, is now where the case is at, just based on Judge Angie Suckowitz making the ruling. I think it was August 23rd, but that was the most recent ruling where she had rejected Kathleen Zellner's um, post-conviction appeal, even in spite of the fact that, that Zellner has uncovered and gotten sworn statements from a, from a Wisconsin uh, newspaper carrier. And I'm going to cover this in the updated book. So for people that have read Wrecking Crew before, when it came out five years ago, this material I'm going to talk about right now here with, with, with Mark and Burl, you know, has never been, it's not part of the book, and it's only come out here in the last uh, year or two. But, uh, but Kathleen Zellner found um, a newspaper carrier who had actually uh, was driving, delivering the papers, guys, uh, just a few hours before Teresa Hallbach's vehicle was found on the Avery property. But she, but this uh, photographer, this uh, newspaper carrier saw two people, including Brendan Dassey's brother, Bobby Dassey, um, pushing the vehicle along with the second individual, a uh, husky set a guy with a beard. And, um, he, and this individual, as it turns out, had actually called the Mantua County Sheriff's Office in the days that it was known that Teresa Halbach was missing, her vehicle was still at large, um, to let them know that, uh, that, you know, that he saw, you know, Bobby Dassey and the second person pushing the vehicle. And uh, not only was that call never turned over to Stephen Avery's defense for the original trial, but um, um, it was... It was um, the sheriff's office never did a follow-up investigation or even track, you know, this guy down. They just uh, told him after he called, but then we already know who did it. So it's kind of oh, a yeah. thing. Kind of cool. But yet you have Bobby Dassey, um, and, and that's who Kathleen Zellner is focused in on, uh, um, Brendan Dassey's uh, older brother. But um, but you have him pushing Teresa Hallbach's vehicle, and you have two or three other people that don't know each other at all from Adam that have given sworn statements uh, that they saw Bobby Dassey driving her vehicle um, and or pushing the vehicle, and yet Kathleen Zellner has still been unable to walk into a courtroom and call witnesses and put on a case in front of a judge to uh, refute the prosecution's original case and show an alternative theory <laughs> as far as what may have really happened to, uh, to Teresa Hallbach. Um you know, and with with Steve Avery having no involvement in her murder, abduction, and death. The, the also the whole thing with the bones in the barbecue, if that's where they were. Yeah, I I hope to have some in the barbecue for dinner tonight. <laughs> yes, but it's not hers. Whether it was human bones or not human bones, I mean that's another whole issue that the uh, the police uh, made sure that evidence they didn't destroy it. They. Uh, Misplaced it? Uh, gave it to the family, assuming it was yeah. hers. Yeah, that, that was given, uh, yeah, the uh, the bones. And the, and the bones were found all over the place, too. So, I mean, you had uh, you had some of her bones found in Bobby Dassey's burn barrel. Again, I said Bobby Dassey's, not Stephen Avery's burn barrel. Um, and then a lot of the other bones were found several hundred yards away at the at the quarry, uh, uh, Joshua Redant and the uh, the Mantua County government's uh, you know quarry properties that were you know abutting 
adjacent to the Stephen Avery uh, or the family's auto salvage yard. Uh, um, so uh, it, it, it's apparent that probably her body after she was murdered was in fact put into that burn barrel, guys. And probably what happened was that uh, you know some of the bones were were dumped or dispersed at the uh, at the quarry, but then several of the bones were still in Bobby Dassey's burn barrel, and that he or others connected to him, tried to dump out some of those bones, you know, in Stephen Avery's burn pit, uh, and that's how and why potentially you had at least a couple bones of Teresa Hallbuck's found on Stephen Avery's property and that that ruined him, you know, when he, when he went to trial. You know, it's, to me, just sitting here in another state, seeing what, you know, just from talking to Michael Griesbeck several years ago when he first called into the show, I'm going, this is nonsense. I mean, see, as an outside observer, I'm going, wait a second, who has a motive to put this stuff there? You know? And that was even before I knew about the thing with the, the car having been seen somewhere else undamaged. You know, I go, well, okay, it seems to me if I were those those cops, if I were in that county, I, and if I was of a, a criminal mind, I'd get a tow truck whatever, and I dragged that sucker over to Avery's property. Absolutely, and uh, and uh, be- because the problem for everybody is that if, if somehow that you bought into the story that was told at the trial, then somehow you believe this crazy story that somehow on Halloween night, after she was potentially murdered, that somehow Avery's lights a bonfire in his backyard and doesn't blow up his garage. <laughs> because his garage, which was falling apart at the time, you know, was just a few feet away from, uh, you know, from this burn pile pit. But, but the story that somehow he had this massive flame going and, uh, and put her body in there and that it burned up. Well, if that was even true, then why in the world would he then leave some of the bones in his burn pit, but then somehow scoop up a, a few and put him in the, his neighbor, I mean, his, his uh, nephew's burn barrel several hundred feet away from his, and then bring a bunch of the other bones to the quarry, which is about a 10 to 15-minute walk, guys. You know, you know, none house. of it makes so, any sense whatsoever. Absolutely not, no. Yeah. I mean, even a, a, a pot-boiler uh, murder mystery writer could have done written a better story than that. Yeah, I mean, there's so many of these ridiculous stories, and that's what the case as far as the evidence. And, uh, I mean, it, I think we probably talked about this years ago on, on, on one of the uh, calls. But, but, yeah, then you get the whole thing about her her spare key, Teresa Hallbeck's spare key being found on Stephen Avery's bedroom floor. By but the they, it took them how many weeks to eight, find it? Yeah, right. <laughs> Yeah, they've been in the in this little trailer seven or eight times before that for like three or four hours at a time on Friday night and Saturday and then Tuesday, you know, almost a week after she, you know, pretty much a week after she's been banished. Um, that somehow, and again, it's not her set of keys. Her full set of keys has never been found to this day, guys. So there's a lot of things about Teresa Hallbeck that we still have no clue uh, whatever happened to. But uh, but nonetheless, a spare key. Is found on uh, on Stephen Avery's uh, bedroom floor by a slipper, and lo and behold, the key comes back and supposedly only has Stephen Avery's DNA on it, and you know, not hers or anybody else's. So. 
Yeah, the the whole thing is just too bizarre. And like uh, Mark said, they've dug themselves such a hole. It's kind of hard. Well, now that the judge has uh, abandoned herself or run away yeah. screaming, uh, yeah. uh, could things change with a different judge? I think so, um, but I wouldn't bet my life or house on it at this point. But I, but as far as if you're Kathleen Zellner and Stephen Avery and you got to kind of roll the dice, uh, you know, or, or, you know, take whatever card gets dealt to you from the deck, um, they got to, this is not the worst, uh, you know, random selection they could have got. Um, this, uh, this new, um, judge, uh, his name is Anthony Lamprecht. Um, I'm still trying to remind myself of his name because he's somebody so unfamiliar to me. He just got elected a judge actually guys in April. Um, and uh, he'd be a good one, Mark, too, to do a little research on just uh, just to just to you know see what uh, what his, his bio background is. But but I do know at least that you know, he, I think he's in his mid forties. Um, this was an, a new and an extra judicial position that they decided they needed in Mantua County because of you know expansion and uh, caseload growth, you know, and uh, just population growth. So it's a brand new judge position. He was elected. He ran unopposed. Um, he had most recently been an assistant district attorney, like Michael Griesbach was the borough back in the day. But before that, he was a, a state of Wisconsin public defender, and I guess he was a police officer for about the first five or six years of his life. Now, I haven't, Mark, done enough research. I, I couldn't tell you. I think it was in Wisconsin, but I don't know what department uh, where he was at. But, um, but he started uh, as a police officer, became a public defender, then became an assistant district attorney prosecutor, and then now he just got elected judge in uh, in April. So, uh, so Zellner, Kathleen Zellner, is the least optimistic that she's got a judge that at least has, you know, an impartial background where he has been a public defender. So, you know, that in her mind is a positive, and yeah. um, you know, time will tell. Um, well, you know this. This reminds me of, uh, you know, I don't know if you've read Jack Olson's great book, Last Man Standing, about Geronimo Pratt, who did 27 years for a murder he did not do. In fact, he wasn't even in town when it happened. He was in the Bay Area when his crime happened in L.A. The FBI finally admitted that they framed him, paid him $16 million. You know, but how do you get back 27 years of your life? You can't can't buy that back. Uh, and every time they did an appeal, it went to the same judge who was in on the conspiracy to convict him. Right. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until one of the appeals went to a different judge who took one look at the case and went, this is ridiculous. This yeah, is absurd. Yeah. How could this guy possibly be convicted when he wasn't even, he wasn't even in town? And yeah, he overturned it. But it took 27 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember I had a case like that about 25, 26 years ago when I was a reporter uh, um, in uh, northwest Indiana. It was a big murder case, and uh, and uh, and the judge on the case, there was a controversial murder case as far as whether or not this, uh, this defendant, I remember his name was Ricky Joyner, um, whether or not he did it because there was an alternative <coughs> suspect uh, the defense had, but nonetheless, it was the Indiana Supreme Court had ruled, overturned his first murder conviction, 
just on the grounds that, that you know, the judge had made some errors, had not allowed the defense to put on, you know, uh, an alternative, uh, you know, a solid alternative suspect theory. So, you know, the case gets overturned. He gets sent back to Judge Duffin's uh, courtroom. And I remember, yeah, the defense asked for a new judge on the case, you know, out of, and they said, you know, even, for, you know, with the utmost respect. And, and I remember Duffin kind of like had this wry smile on his face and, you know, and just ruled on the spot. No, well, I can be fair, you know, and yeah. uh, rejected that. And he, and he handled the second trial and the guy was found guilty again the second time around. Ricky Joyner. Yeah, so. You know, it's basically when uh, Aaron Moriarty was on the show, uh, she's been on a couple, three times, oh. three, four yeah, times. Yeah, Sherlock Holmes was here yeah, with us. Great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, she was amazed and abused the gas to gog and thunderstruck when I said that I knew of a case where someone was sent to prison for a crime they were never charged with and never went to court on. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and that's true. Uh-huh. <laughs> Uh, go, you know, well, don't, you know, don't collect $200. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, that was a, a guy uh, had a, a, like a storage facility, and someone called up and said, will you please send that stuff over? Which he did. And so he was uh, sent to prison as an accessory because he sent the material over. He was never even charged with anything. But they sent him to prison anyway. Oh, that's crazy. What I know. That, that was in Alaska. The Alaska oh, okay. mail bomb conspiracy case that I wrote about. And oh. Aaron was just shocked. Says, That's impossible. I said, no, it happened. You can look yeah. it up. You don't even have to be arrested in this country anymore to be sent to prison. So I, uh, You should be familiar with uh, Andrew Colburn. Oh, yes, very much so. Very okay, much so, so. so his and defamation case against Netflix... Yeah, and I cover that. Uh, that's going to be a big uh, part of the book updates uh, to then, uh, Mark. So uh, um, that was very uh, interesting. And I did a couple stories just when I was, uh, I mean, well, I still am a reporter, but I did a couple uh, on that uh, when that was filed. And, uh, and um, that finally got resolved earlier this year with uh, with a favorable ruling for Netflix and uh and the producers of uh, Netflix. Uh, I, um, I like the part where the ruling states specifically that 12 of the items that uh, Andrew objected to were were patently true and therefore could not be considered defamation. defamation. <laughs> I, I read that and made me laugh. <laughs> you also realize, too, that he kind of really went behind the scenes and in the shadows, guys. But I could bring up Michael Griesbach's name again. Michael Griesbach was the lawyer that filed that lawsuit, the defamation lawsuit, on Andrew Colbert's behalf. Uh, um, um, so uh, uh, that, that's kind of another interesting side note. But uh, but I thought, yeah, Judge Ludwig um, out of Wisconsin, another federal judge that, uh, again, if you put any of the Avery, and, Avery or Brendan Dassey case in a federal court, it seems like, um, the federal judges um, are a lot more objective and, and just brutally honest as far as about the facts of the case. And they know the case inside and out. And that's what I point out in this updated book uh, is that the federal judge on the Colburn case, you know, you compare his knowledge and uh, um, experience in assessment of the, of the case versus, you know, Judge Angie Suckwitz who had handled Stevens' appeal in, in state court 
for several years, and it's just a night and day, uh, you know, comparison. But uh, but yeah, the federal judge really takes Andrew Colburn and Respect again in the shadows, takes them the task as far as you know for this lawsuit, uh, this defamation lawsuit, because again, so many of the allegations that Colburn was alleging were true. Were true, Mark. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. Absolutely amazing. It's, you know, the sad thing is, is that I grew up thinking that the court system, that we had a system of justice in America, and that's not really the case. We have a system of courts, and we also have a system of corruption that goes, uh, it's like I said during the Watergate thing, it's like a turtleneck. The cover-up goes all the way to the top. <laughs> Well, I, I, I think I think we need to to couch this in a more uh, realistic terms. That um, there's always going to be bad apples in the barrel. Yeah. But it is, but that's yeah. only that's only going to be a very small percentage. It's unfortunate that there's any, but there's it exists, but it isn't generally the case. Um, we are talking about specifically and dealing with instances where this is the norm because it's what we're talking about right but it is only a small percentage of the overall but if you're the person who happens to be in, in the wrong one it's a big deal it's a big it's deal because it's your life but we're not painting yeah. everyone no uh in the judiciary system is a uh you know as a, a corrupt uh, jackal yeah um when i was when i was younger much younger um, the court system seemed to like me, and so I was uh, in court uh, for jury duty every year, almost 23 years straight. Sometimes no cases, and you're gone, but in the beginning, you were there for two weeks regardless. You go in, you sit all day, do jigsaw puzzles. But the, uh, the dozen trials that I got on, I saw a system that worked. I I saw a system that uh, took everything into consideration. I saw good judges. I saw bad judges. I had one judge that was in charge of all parolees within the Van Nuys court system. And she was so distracted that she couldn't pay attention to what was going on in the courtroom. And she made a lot of mistakes in that trial. Uh, one of my favorites, uh, the defendant was uh, accused of brandishing a weapon. Um, we tried to get the judge to define legally brandishing for us because the instructions, printed instructions, were not sufficient. I mean, if you hold it at your side, is that brandishing? Do you have to raise it above your waist? Do you have to move it in a menacing manner? What kind of crap? The Defense attorney, his first trial, wanders, grabs the pair of nunchucks, which, if you're not a martial artist, it's two cylinders of either wood or metal with a string attached to each end in the middle. And then they're wielded, you know, and you smack people or or deflect other weapons. And he's going up to hand these to the defendant to ask him, are these yours? And out of the corner of her eye, she catches the silliness. And I can still hear the shriek of no. <laughs> no! 
No. Go get. Don't give the defendant a weapon. <laughs> but yeah, but for the but for the most part, um, I saw a system that worked. Well, we had Leonard Bouchel on last week, where he said that when he went to court on his uh, drug case, his attorney said, "This is very simple. You give us X amount of dollars, seven hundred fifty to me, seven fifty to the prosecutor, seven fifty to the judge, and you walk." And they did. They paid the money, and he walked. I also think that... Well, uh, he still plays a role in, in, in our judicial system. Uh, there's no doubt about it, especially when it comes to your representation, you know, as far as if you can afford a, a high-powered uh, lawyer versus, you know, taking a spin of, a, you know... Of the public of a defender. With, uh, ...with a public defender. Now, speaking of public defenders, uh, <laughs> I saw one where the public defender was only there for people pleading guilty and was not there for people pleading not guilty. And I asked them why. He said, because these people have enough respect for the system to plead guilty. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's still the policy at that particular court, but I found that rather unusual. I have a feeling it's probably not the only place in the country that's like that. But again, I'm not saying that's the norm at all, guys. And a friend of mine, uh, a friend of mine in Walla Walla, Washington, is public defender, and he was giving the best defense possible to his client. The judge called him over and said, "What the hell are you doing?" He says, <laughs> "I'm giving my client best defense possible." He says, "Well, remember who pays you, because the judge and the public defender, you know, are paid from the same source." So yeah. he, was, he was telling him to back off to not give such a good defense. So things that uh, things are strange. Have you uh, have you had any jury duty experience? I've been called or you know kind of in the um, board year process, Mark, on a number of occasions, but I've never made the cut, so to speak, uh, for the trial. It, yeah, it, it seems like I'm trying to remember. I bet I had. I was called probably about 10 or 12 years ago when I was still in Omaha, Nebraska, um, the area where I wrote the first book about Dave Colford and Bloody Lies. But, I mean, I was called for jury duty for a completely separate uh, case. But uh, I remember, uh, you know, after I identified myself as a news reporter, I got the impression maybe the defense got rid of me, which is kind of interesting because I bet more people, you know, that are familiar with my journalism and reporting probably you know, would think I lean a little bit toward, toward your know, defense and, uh, versus well, prosecution. But, but, then, uh, but, then, but then you, yeah, I got rejected by the defense. So. You have, you have a critical eye, attention to detail and a mind for order in, uh, in effect. And it's possible that the defense didn't want somebody that was intelligent enough to figure out that they were defending a guilty yeah. person. Yeah, you know it, it's there. You know everyone knows it's a science for picking juries and a, a lot yeah, and much in, in high-profile cases. But you know mm -hmm. he, uh, you're taught when in law school to look for people that either are in, are in a position to help your case because of their life experience or not. If you know, um, 
if you have uh, a malpractice suit involving uh, a doctor, you don't want uh, a professor of med- of medicine from Harvard University. Right. You don't want somebody that understands all of the nuances. Now, I was involved depends. in a, a malpractice case. Uh, my, oh. my ex-wife, I had a malpractice case against her dentist. And dentist uh, in private would say, oh, boy, this guy really screwed up your mouth. This guy is a butcher. <laughs> he shouldn't be practicing. Will you yeah. testify? No. <laughs> they, they, they didn't want to go on record against this guy. Right. Well, we see that all the time, you know, law enforcement as far as, uh, I mean, look at my first book, Bloody Lies. I mean, how how many years did Dave Colford get away, guys, with uh, with planting evidence and fabricating evidence and other people that worked around him had suspicions about that, you know, so. Yeah, it's the uh, prosecutor, there was a study on prosecutorial misconduct uh, in the United States, and L.A. didn't come out too good in that. Uh, <laughs> Uh, well, I bet they didn't. Yeah, no, that was that was a problem. Uh, in the book I wrote, uh, I can't remember what the, which the name of it was. It was the one I wrote after Murder of the Family took place in Tacoma. The defense attorney was so upset with the prosecutorial misconduct by the prosecutor, of course, that he ran against him in the next election and won. And, That's impressive. Yeah. <laughs> and my. Uh, my my uh, cousin, who was an attorney, was reading the book, and he called me up and he said, the guy who won when he became a prosecutor was just as bad. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Let's say murder in the family or a ta- or uh, case for murder, either of those? Uh, no, it was what I, after that. Fatal I, Beauty? No, no, I can't even remember the title of my own book. Mom Said Kill? No, no. <laughs> Broken Doll? Uh, no, 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 no. Uh, Murderer's Row? No, no, it doesn't matter. Man Overboard? No, no. no. <laughs> How about Headshot? Man Overboard, I don't think, was Phil Champlain. Yeah, it was yes, Phil Champlain. Yes, the cartoon mouse. Yeah, that's when, when Anthony Spitter said, uh, can we make these changes to the story if we do a TV adaptation? And we wanted to make every cliche that you ever saw in a TV show, we wanted to put in the story. And I asked Phil, he says, I don't care if they make me a cartoon mouse, just as long as they write a check. <laughs> hey, okay, uh, your your new advanced uh, revised edition of Wrecking Crew. Uh, is it available for advance order? Wild Blue Press. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to say, I, I, uh, I'm hoping that we'll coming out here in the next two weeks for sure before the holidays uh, guys. So, next uh, is Wrecking Crew by John Farrick. Buy it, read it, believe it. Thanks for joining us. Thanks a lot. Love to have you on the show. Thank you so much. <laughs>